Well, look over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we come to our fifth message, number five on the gospel comes home. And we're in that wonderful section of Ephesians. And let me just go ahead and read for you as you're opening to it in verse 5. And we'll go 28 through 32. Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray and then we'll look to God's word. Father, we uh, are in need of this weighty passage to impact our hearts, to impact our minds, to impact our homes. And Father, even as we come to the husband's role, we're looking back at the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and even his bride, the church, which is his body. So Father, we're pleading that your spirit would tune our hearts to understand this crucial really theological concept, but placed for a practical fashion in our homes and in our leadership to our men. So Lord, would you help us? Would you be our teacher? Would you cause our homes to be a reflection of the beauty of Christ and his bride? And we ask this in his name. Amen. I mean, there's no doubt that you've probably heard the maxim before, the statement before. In fact, I've seen it on signs, and maybe you could finish the statement if you've heard it, is happy wife, happy what? Life. I mean, there's truth to that, and I'd even say uh, it's really actually biblical. (laughs) I'll show you why, but happy wife, happy life, or the other one that is somewhat humorous is, is on a sign is if mama ain't happy, then nobody's, what, happy. I mean, praise God that we have a definitive word bound up in the word of God, not only for the role of the wife, but for the role of the husband. I praise God for that. And as I've mentioned, really, in the past weeks, we come to the greatest statement ever written in the scripture and really to a very practical conclusion today. I stopped the reading at 32. I'll summarize next week and we'll close that section out for the wives. We'll close that section out for the husbands. Then Andy will preach on October 2nd. And then when I come back, we'll give a word from the word of God, both to the children in six, one through three, what their responsibility is. And then a word to the parents in six, Four. That's our future. But it's easy to think, and maybe it's, it's not so easy, but maybe some in naivety think that marriages at a wedding in particular, as off they go uh, to live happily, what, ever after. 
But we understand, those of you who have been married and are married, it's not so easy. In fact, there's a book that we use sometimes in premarital counseling, and the title of the book is When Sinners Say I Do. And there's truth to that. They don't go off to live happily ever after. There's issues in all of our life that must be worked through, maturity that must be sought and even gained. And there's roles given. And these roles that I'm preaching cut against, I guess I would say, our default mechanism for self. Now, we're looking at in 20. 5 through verse 32, I'm going to add a truth. Five truths on the husband's role for God's glory and for your joy in the home. There's five truths there, and we've looked at the first three, and I'll, I'll just touch on them. The mandate of love is stated. Husbands, in verse 25, love your wives. I think if you were to look at your text, there's six different times that the, the husband's mandate is to love as modeled even as well in the person of Christ. And so as the husband is the head of the wife, as head of the wife, his mandate given to him by God in this text is to love his wife. And the thought there, even by implication to us, is he is to be selfless for her. Then secondly, he put out not just the mandate, but the model of love. And the model, as we stated the last couple weeks, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, a husband as well is to love his wife after the model of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only is it a selfless love, but secondly, it is a sacrificial love. And so there was a mandate put out in the text. There's a model given. Thirdly, uh, we looked last week at the mission of love that is revealed. And specifically, it was 26 and 27. That mission of love revealed, or the purpose, was because there were three clauses there. And as it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Verse 27, that he might present uh, the church to himself. And then thirdly, in verse 27, that he might, that uh, she might, the church namely, be holy and without blemish. And, and so we talked about sanctification and presentation and glorification. And in a statement, not only is a husband to show selfless love, a husband secondly was to show sacrificial love like Christ. And now we'd say it this way, that he's to demonstrate a spotless love for her. So just as Christ seeks to present his church to himself as a glorious bride in a glorious marriage, so should the husband desire to make his wife and his marriage glorious. Now, as we come to the text, Paul's going to just take us, I say, one step further. He, he's not done yet. In fact, there's two crucial elements that I see. Because you might ask the question, how does a husband put this into practice? 
I mean, Jesus is the model, yes, and we gain a glimpse of his sacrifice and were to do that. And Jesus is the model even in that third aspect of, of the, the mission of love revealed in that whatever he does for the church, a husband likewise is to do, the church, is to, is to do that in his home. But how do I put that into practice? You might even use the expression... I am not Christ. You might even use the expression, I even feel uh, hopeless. And there's a part of me that says, that is true. You are not Christ and I am not Christ. There's an aspect of this thing as you raise your family and love your wife and raise those kids, you do feel hopeless and you are clinging to the person of Christ. However, I would say, there is no excuse for you men to not be what you need to be out of this text. In other words, you could so lean on grace and so lean and deflect to the person of Christ that you have no mandates left, that you have no commitment left. And you would agree with me that that's certainly not true. Now, we both know that the only way to keep this is through the filling of the Spirit. So, apart from the Spirit, we are hopeless. Apart from the Spirit, until we get to glory, we'll never be like Christ, who's the perfect husband, okay? However, I'm still left with the fact that you have something to do, okay? You are to love your wives. That is a command. That is the mandate. And as a single man, that is the command. And that is the mandate. So very well, how can I put this teaching into practice? And so I bring you to the fifth, the, excuse me, the fourth truth is the manner of love is practiced. The manner of love is practiced. Look at verse 28. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And I think I just proceeded by, by reading that in the statement, in the same way. In the same way. In the same way as Christ loved the church, as Christ modeled love for the church, as Christ sanctified the church, in the same way, in the same way. And I think I'm, I'm prodding that because I think sometimes we live in such a, uh, a Western thought of God's grace that it has stripped the imperative away in the home. And the imperative in the home is that because we've been redeemed, we need to live like Christ. So in the same way, a husband should love his wife as their own body. And obviously, he's introducing a comparison here. And you get it. As Christ loved the church, which is his body, that was in Ephesians, in the same way husbands are to love their wives, and you can see it in verse 28, as their own body, okay? Now look again, let me just build a little groundwork here. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. In other words, it's a, it's a command there. They, they owe it to their wife. 
No excuses here. In fact, the word there means you're obligated to your wife. And if you want to ask, you say, was that when you said your vows at the wedding? I would say no. Well, it certainly includes that. The word is a present tense. In other words, you should love, you owe to your wife, you're obligated to love your wife habitually. Now, it's an interesting phrase. Look at it again in 28. You're to love your wives as their own bodies, as their own body. It is not saying that a husband should love his wife, understand here, what do you mean as, as in verse 28, as their own bodies? Well, obviously, he's not talking about to love her and to love your own body in a narcissistic way. You're to love your wife as your own body, and the, the implication here, you, you understand, but I want to make it clear. Marriage is not two people, but what? One. And so when a husband gets married, the two become one. The two, and we'll see it in a moment, become one flesh. Men, let me say this to you, that marriage is such an intimate, personal, tender relationship that marriage itself no longer is two separate individuals, but one. So he says, in light of who Christ is, here the manner of love that is practiced is, husbands, love your wife, here's what he's saying, as being his own body. Husbands, your wife, um, or, or to love your wife, she is one flesh with you, okay? Husbands, maybe just as an implication here, do you think of your wife in this way? It would change your life. In other words, when you made and shared vows together, a divine miracle happened. <laughs> Two people became one, and a wife is to be loved because she is his body. This is what I call divine mathematics, okay? Well, I know we have some math teachers in here. Here's divine mathematics. One plus one equals what? One. That is the teaching. So watch this, husbands, and I don't hear people saying this, but, but, but I'm just here in the vernacular of our culture. She is not just your spouse, she is most certainly not just the old lady. Does anybody use that anymore? Yeah, she's my, she's my old lady. Oh, no, 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 hold on, okay? You are not just two people, you are not two halves, but I would say you are two halves of one and Write this down, wife. If your husband needs a reminder, put it on the refrigerator. She is definitely the better half, okay? Okay? It's an axiomatic principle that your wife is so, men, husbands, intimately connected to you that Paul said in 28, he who loves his wife, look at it in verse 28, loves who? Himself. 
Not narcissistically, that's not what it's talking about. If you love your wife, you love yourself is the principle. You say, well, how do I understand that? Put your nose back in the book in verse 29. For, here's the clause. What does that mean? He loves his wife, loves himself. 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does what? The church. I mean, this is just a basic truth, is it not? He says there in 29, no one ever hated his own flesh. Don't let that throw you off. It's used interchangeably in the New Testament with body. So no one ever, speaking to you men, hated his own flesh or hated his own body, okay? Husbands, the way then that you care for your body is evident. You feed it. Lord willing, you're caring for it. You groom yourself, this is what Paul's saying. You clothe it, you comfort it, you maintain it. That's a given. And so the way that you would do that for your needs, as you love yourself, not narcissistically, you just take care of yourself. The biblical principle here is, I think it's on the screen, in Leviticus 19, 18, remember here when it says, you shall not take vengeance nor hear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall, here it is, love your neighbor, what? As yourself. So that this principle here that you, you, you love your wives as you love yourself, is the biblical principle is this principle of your neighbor starts in the home, Husband, your nearest and dearest neighbor is your wife, is your wife. That is the teaching. And so here you are to give the same attention you give to yourself to your wife. That's the principle here. Now look at the text again in 29. No one ever hated his own flesh. Here's, it's an axiomatic principle, but you do two things to it, and you've seen these words before. They're verbs. Look down again in 29, but nourishes, there's the first verb, and secondly, cherishes it. You say, what does that mean? Well, the word nourish is a unique word which means, are you ready for this? It means to nourish. <laughs> okay, really profound there. So what does that mean? It means to, here's the bottom line, to feed, to feed. And primarily, it's used in reference to nurturing and bringing up children. Look in your Bible just over at the next chapter in 6.4. You've seen that word before. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Here's the line in the ESV. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But that phrase there, to bring them up, is to nourish. In fact, in the NASB, it says to nourish and discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And so here the nurturing is what a parent does with a child. Let me ask you, husbands, do you think of your wife that way? So what do you mean? You are to nourish her. 
You are to feed her, if, if you will, is the thought, okay? You are to take care of her. If the word means to feed, I, I would also say that it could refer to the fact that men are to be the breadwinner in the family. In other words, you've been called by God as a husband to love your wife and you are to nourish your wife. And I think it could also extend to being the breadwinner. In other words, and here, she is not the provider. You are. You're to nourish your wife. Just as you would care for a child, and I'm not saying your wife is a child, she's an equal partner in that relationship, but you're to, to nourish her. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. This is a husband's responsibility. You are, here's the manner of love practiced, to provide for your wife. And I would extend it. You're to provide for her emotionally. You are to provide for her spiritually. You are to provide for her physically, to feed. A husband is to see his wife as a treasure to care for. So what does that mean? Well, you do everything in your power to meet the needs of your wife and to nourish her. But he gives a second word. Look back in the text. He says to, he says to cherish it. Now, he's giving the illustration of a husband with his own body, okay? I was just talking to one of our men in the church here, and he was up at an undisclosed location hunting uh, this last week. And I was just fascinated. Here, we're blistering in the heat at least a week ago. What is it, in the, in the te high teens or the teens? And uh, 115, 116. Oh, it's only 113 today, actually. And he was up in a high mountain uh, this last week, and uh, it was a blizzard. And there was sleet there. And, there, and, and they put the tent next to a bluff, and it's 28 degrees. I said, man, did you have the right shoes? Oh, yeah, I had the right shoes. Did you have the right socks? Yeah, I had the right socks. In other words, if you're going to go hunting, you better be covered in the right way with the right equipment. I, Paul's point is, just as you would take care of yourself, you're to take care of your bride. Just as you would meet your own needs, and you would clothe yourself with the right gear, feed yourself. In fact, I was watching a football game yesterday. I'll leave his name undisclosed, but he's a young boy in our church. He just basically ran over two boys on a run with the football. I'm like, dude, that guy is a stud. I mean, I'll give you his name for you young girls out. You know, I just... Um, <laughs> But he just ran over. It was like, boom. It was like a wrecking ball. Well, he had pads on. He had a helmet on. He had a face guard on. He had all the, okay, you're not going to go out there and do that unless 
Jack's going to say real men playing rugby don't wear any gear. I don't know. Um, But he had the right gear on. And here Paul is just saying, listen, you're to nourish her. You're to, the second word is cherish. You say, Scott, what does that mean? Well, it's a fascinating word. This is what a husband is to do. This is what a husband does as he cares for himself, but he's to do this for his wife. The word cherish means to soften or to warm with body heat. That's what it means. To soften, to warm with body heat. In fact, that word cherish was used in the Old Testament in 22.6 of Deuteronomy. Here's the picture. It described a mother bird that would sit on her nest with new chicks. This is the role of a husband here. In a harsh world, you husbands are to provide love. You're to provide a place of warmth. You're to give her a nest, if you will. You're to provide her security. You are to provide her a place of nourishment as well as you cherish her. A husband's responsibility is to nourish and to cherish his wife as they would their own body. This is what male headship is. And I don't care what the world says. This is what God's word says. Male headship, back he's the head, isn't some domineering guy. It's actually a guy who's living his life in such sacrifice for his wife. And headship involves strength. Headship involves protection. Headship involves even the thought of tenderness like that of holding a baby infant. So husbands, you know this and I do, you have to die to the thought of a macho image, whatever that is, and to nourish and cherish your wife. You say, well, why would I do that? Look at the text again in verse 29. It says you're to nourish and cherish it, comma, just as oof, Christ does the what? Church. In other words, he's the model, is he not? Here's the manner of how that love operates, just as Christ does the church. Just as Christ, you would not doubt that, is tenderly shepherding the church, is tenderly making every provision for the church. You say, well, what did he do for the church? Well, We don't have time, and we've been preaching on that. He loved us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He sealed us with the person of the Holy Spirit. He empowers the church. He made the church one in Ephesians 2. He gifted the church in Ephesians chapter 4. He sanctifies the church, as we saw last week, and he cares for us even now. You say, well, why does he do all of that? Look again at the text in verse 30. Here's why. Do you see it? Because, here's why he does that. Because we're members of his, what? Body. In other words, we're members of Christ's body, which is the church, And the idea of members, I won't take the time, we spent a year preaching around that, is that you're in union with Christ, 
that when you came to a relationship with Jesus Christ, he not only saved you, but he put you in his body, which he's the head, and which you're the members of it. So Christ does everything to nourish and to cherish the body, Christ, the, 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 the local church. Why? Because you're part of him. You're connected to him. In fact, go back in Ephesians 1, just briefly. Look at verse 22. After the resurrected Christ came forward, he put all things under his feet and gave him in 122 as head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body. So, beloved, you know there's different imagery for the church. It's the temple. But here, the church is described as a body upon which he's the head. And it says he's head over all things to the church, which is his body. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 16. As he's talking about what he did for the church, that he might, 2.16 of Ephesians, reconcile us, and the us is both Jew and Gentile, both to God in, here's the phrase, one body. He put two warring people in one body, if you will, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 6. The mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow members, or fellow heirs, excuse me, members of the same, what, body. Okay, look at chapter 4, verse 4, when he begins to describe the, the oneness. Theologically, he says in 4.4, there is one body, okay, he gives leaders to the church, glance down in 4.11, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For, here's the, here's the purpose clause, the building up of the body of Christ. Look over at 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, each of you speak truth uh, with his neighbor. For, here's why, we are members of, of one another. And so the reason here is this is beginning to be unfolded that we are to be like Christ is we're members of his body and he's explaining really a very intimate covenant. But he's going to take you one place further. Look at verse 31. You've seen this before. It's in quotations. Do you have that? The quotation is Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, because we're members of his body, how? Therefore, a man, a husband, shall leave his father and mother. And it says in the ESV, hold fast, but I'm so used to the NASB, cleave, but hold fast, I'll tell you what it means, that cleave to his wife, and the two shall become, what? One flesh. That phrase at the end is key to what he says in a very profound way in just a moment. The two shall become one flesh. Now, that is a quotation out of Genesis 2.24, 
but I think it will come up. Does it come up on the screen, you guys? Remember this, this is pre-fall. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, right? He was made out of the what of the ground? The dust of the ground. But when he made Eve, the Lord God had taken from the man. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, I always think this is funny. How do you read that? Do you, do you read it like this? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. I don't think so. He had just named all the animals, okay? He had named the hippopotamus. He named the rhinoceros. Then there was an elephant. Then there was a zebra. And then there's this thing called a porcupine, right? He's naming all the animals. And then when he got done naming them, he realized there was no one like him, no one that corresponded to him, no one that he could communicate to him. And that's something it says was not perfect. The man should not be, what? Alone. Then he creates Eve, and I think he said it this way, this at last, maybe I'm wrong, we can ask him, is bone of my bones. I think he was stunned. There she was, Eve, in sinless perfection. Adam, in sinless perfection. No sin had tainted the world. It's pre-fall. And I think he did it that way. He probably said, I don't know. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? She's taken out of man. And here's our quote. 531 is 224. Therefore, a man, I mean, I've probably done 400 weddings. And you'd think it's the second way when the, the, the father walks down to the bride. Who gives this woman to be married to this? Well, if, if it's a guy marrying my daughter, who gives this woman to be married to this gorilla? I mean, I guess I can't believe I have to give my daughters away, okay? But therefore, a man shall. Why? He's the leader. He's the head. He's leaving. There's the word leave. His father and his mother... And he holds fast. He cleaves to his wife. And here's the phrase. And they shall become, what? One flesh. Divine mathematics. One plus one equals one. They shall become one flesh. So you say, well, Scott, what is that pushing to here? That the marriage union itself, and I'll apply this in a moment, is unbreakable. It is an indivisible union of two people that have become one flesh. And you can turn back to Ephesians now. It's there in 2.24. Shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. A couple leaves. And it's the ideal of abandoning. Not completely, because in Ephesians 6 four that would carry on after you raise your children, that children are still to honor their parents. But in terms of a priority, that, that man is asked to leave, right, his father and mother, 
and uh, you honor them. And then it says, and the two shall become one flesh. What's one flesh? Here's my best rendering. It's oneness of mind. Oneness of heart. Oneness certainly of physical intimacy in that union. In fact, so intimate is the marriage union itself that in verse 31 it says, hold fast to his wife, or NASB, cleave to his wife. It's the word hold fast is proskalao. What does that mean? It means to glue together. You're leaving this, abandoning as a priority any other relationship, leave. You are holding fast, you are cleaving, you are being glued together, okay? And uh, Grace Church, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't skip this. For you, I wouldn't skip it. Because this is why God absolutely hates, what? Divorce. Malachi 2.16. You, you've already left and cleft, leave, cleave. You've already been glued together. And divorce breaks the heart of God because it breaks that which God designed to last. Marriage, and you know this, is to be unbreakable. In fact, Jesus said of the marriage covenant, in fact, I want you to go there. I missed something in the PowerPoint. Go back, at, look at Matthew. Jesus reiterates this. Look at Matthew chapter 19. It's not the only place. It's Genesis 2.24. It's 5.31 of Ephesians. It's 19, and I, I want you to see this in verse 5. It's, it's his teaching about divorce. Therefore, 19.5 of Matthew. Therefore, a man shall, he's quoting, is he not? Leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So whatever it says in, in Genesis 2.24, it's stated here. But verse 6, they are no longer two, Jesus said, but one flesh. And then here's the phrase, what therefore God has joined together, let no man ever, what? Separate. The biblical pattern for marriage is simple. Leave, cleave, be glued together, one flesh, indivisible, the work of God for life. This could be, I don't have time here, this is beyond my notes, and that's when my wife would say, be careful, when it, you know. This is the great evangelical sin. The divorce. And we've missed this by our Lord. Now, one flesh is one heart, one mind, one purpose, and it involves the physical union. But I, I got to show you this. It's more than physical intimacy, but certainly one flesh is that. Does this come up on the screen in 1 Corinthians 6? Do you not know, that this is the exclusivity of a marriage, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, what? Body with her. One flesh 
with her. You say, they're not married. I know, and you know that. It's a prostitute. But you join that, you become one body with her, for it is written, back to Genesis 2, 24, the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is why he says in the very next verse, if you look at it, write it down, flee sexual immorality. And then in a very unique way, he says every other sin a man commits outside of his body, but the one who joins himself to a prostitute sins against his own body, okay? So come back with me because we got the most exciting thing in the last few minutes. Here's the mandate to love. It's sacrificial. Here is the model of love. It's Christ. Here is the mission of love, in essence, to sanctify her. Here's the manner of love that you nourish and cherish her as Christ does the church. But I'm going to take you one step further because Paul does. And I'm going to ask you, husbands, what's the motive behind this? I mean, why do that? I mean, it's noble. It's biblical. But why love your wife sacrificially? I'm asking, why seek her purity? Why nourish her? Why cherish her? What is the motive behind this role? And there's something here more profound in the text than the husband-wife relationship. You say, but Scott, that's what we're talking about. I know. But the Bible says there's something more profound than that. You say, well, what is it? It's verse 32. Look at it. This mystery is profound. Now, there's question as to what is the mystery and what's he talking about? Is he talking about all that has come in the previous weeks? Possibly. But if I just took it in the reading, this mystery is profound. What mystery? Back in verse 31, the two shall become one flesh. He said this mystery, uh, here ESV is profound. Sometimes a translation says this mystery is great. I think the Greek word is megala, okay? You get it. But here he says it's profound. And then he says, and I'm saying that, it refers to Christ and the church. So here is the fifth role of a husband, that the motive of love is required. There's a motive given here, okay? In Genesis 2.24, it's quoted in Ephesians 5.31, and in that text, in 5.31, one flesh, back to Genesis 2.24, was applied to the husband and wife relationship. The two shall become one flesh. But Paul states here in verse 32 that that one flesh principle transcends marriage and points to the covenant between Christ and the church. Okay, what what does that mean? Husbands, listen, are to treat marriage with such reverence with such awe because the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, is a sacred symbol 
of something greater, and that greater is the relationship of Christ to his church. So marriage then is a sacred portrait of Christ and the church. The church is one with Christ. There lies the mystery. The mystery, just go back just so you can see it in 3.6 of Ephesians. I'll just read one verse. He says that mystery or this mystery in 3.6, what is it? It's, a, it's something that was laid up in the sovereignty of God, but it wasn't previously revealed. It's now revealed in the New Testament. This mystery, unknown to the Old Testament, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members, here it is, of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So walk with me. The two shall become one flesh is not only a discourse on marriage itself, that, but here the mystery is profound, not marriage per se, but specifically the mystery of Christ and the church revealed in the New Testament, which is the gospel. So what does that mean? Well, when God designed marriage, when he designed marriage back in 224, he already had Christ and the church in his mind. In other words, this is one of the great purposes of marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. It is a profound truth that can only be grasped by the Spirit of God that the one flesh union, okay, is not about marriage per se, but it's about the grand truth of what Jesus did to bring us into union with himself. So there's more in 224 than just marriage. You say, well, what did Christ do? Well, he loved us. He gave himself up for us. He went to the cross for you. He died for you. He paid the penalty of your sins. He removed your guilt. He removed your condemnation. He wiped away your shame. He then united you to him as members in his body with the church, as the church, and then he's going to sanctify you and present you one day as glorious as a bride adorned for her husband. Christ, beloved, made his enemies his bride. That's the gospel. He gave up his glory. He gave up his power. He became a servant. He died to his own interest to meet the interest and the needs of others and to present you wholly before him. He forgives us and you are to forgive your spouse. He loves you and you are to love your wife, men. He's tender. He helps us, and you're to be tender and help your wife. The profound mystery here, though, is Christ and the church. Christ obtained the church by his blood, and he formed a new covenant with her, an unbreakable covenant, and unbreakable with his redeemed in that relationship. 
And husbands, the implication is, is that Christ will never, you know that, abandon his bride. There may be setbacks in a marriage, but Christ keeps his covenant forever, doesn't he? Right? And marriage is to display that. Husbands, keeping your vows, I could say to wives, to keep your vows to each other displays the beauty and the commitment of Christ and his church. And this can only be fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me make this statement. I sometimes say this at a wedding. Marriage is not primarily about you. Marriage is not even primarily about your kids. Your marriage is not primarily about your dreams. It's not about your home. It points to the relationship of a godly home magnifying Christ by becoming one flesh and being joined to his body. So I like, I think it's Keller said it this way. Marriage, this is the teaching of Ephesians 5, is the shadow of the reality. Marriage then is God's living, breathing, full-colored object lesson of the unbreakable, unending, unfading covenant love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And husbands, you ought to be modeling that. You say, well, only Christ is perfect. I know. But he's asked you the scripture. He's commanded you to love your wife that way. I'm thinking of Ephesians 3.19. Husbands, just same as Ephesians, love your wives, and then it says, do not be harsh with them. See, this type of love is not demanding, it's sacrificial. It's not oppressive. He takes up the role of a servant. It's not harsh. It's not rude. You say, well, what is it like? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It isn't irritable. It isn't resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the last phrase is love never, what? Ends. So uh, a man of God could never say to his wife, I just don't love you anymore. I, I just, the feeling is gone. Aren't you glad Christ didn't say that on the cross? This, this, is, this is what, this is the manner of love that is to be practiced. May God give us grace to apply that.